Black on the Scene is a love letter to Black creators, Black content, and Black voices who are helping to drive change, representation, and entertainment. I'm John Gist, here with my co-host, Dee Dee Brown, and we are two industry professionals that have worked on some of the most iconic multicultural film and television campaigns over the years. The Black on the Scene podcast will highlight the many accomplishments of Black folks across film, TV, music, art, literature, and sports that celebrate diverse and nuanced stories which embody our culture. In each episode, we shout out and give flowers to some culture contributors and creators that you know and those you should know for being Black on the scene. So let's get into this episode. Welcome to Black on the Scene, and today we have a special lady joining Didi and I to chat. We have Janae Bolden, hip-hop buff and avid lover of words, who currently serves as the managing editor at Bossup.com. Not only is she a journalist, but she is a skilled moderator and public speaker and has hosted events for numerous artists and enjoys partaking in just about every kind of cultural experience, whether it be film, art, fashion, or music-related. Janae originally hails from Birmingham, Alabama. Girl, I'm from Montgomery. We got something else in common. Mm -hmm. But but her childhood was spent in College Park, Georgia, Brookline, Massachusetts, and Iowa City, Iowa, before attending college in New York City. She graduated magna cum laude from New York University with a bachelor's degree in English and a minor in Africana Studies. She also earned her MFA in fiction from NYU's creative writing program before launching a career as an entertainment journalist. She has worked at some of the top hip-hop music outlets such as SOHH, XXL, The Source, and Vibe.com. And she has interviewed literally the who's who of the entertainment and music industry, including Miss Jackson, If You're Nasty, The Game, Young Jeezy, Pusha T, 3-6 Mafia, Nicki Minaj, Wiz Khalifa, and many more. And she represents for the natural hair sisters like me with her curly mob lifestyle brand. One thing about Janae is she is always going to serve you lots of big, gorgeous girls. Damn right, Dee Dee Brown. I've known Janae just as long as I've been in the industry, and she has always been the warmest, funniest, realest Black journalist I know. I can always guarantee a good time when we cross paths, and I'm so excited to welcome you, Janae Bolden, to Black on the Scene. (laughs) Thanks, guys. I got to update my bio. I'm actually the Senior Content Director at Bossip and Global Grind now, so Danielle's Managing Editor. Just don't want to, you know confuse people oh okay good well congratulations thank you how you how you feeling today I feel great it's a beautiful day you know I'm blessed to be breathing you know you you always got to look at the positives you wake up and always say you're blessed and you you know it'll carry through sometimes you might feel a little shaky but today I'm actually I'm waking up I'm happy I've been productive I've walked the dog I posted horoscopes on Bossip you know, put on a face for you guys. Put on a face, looking and, beautiful. And curls the curls popping. are popping, 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 popping. I I did a different um, pineapple method with the silk scarf. Of course, by the morning, the scarf is like hanging on for dear life. But you know, Didi, you know, when you sleep on it wrong, you have it. Wake up, one side is like I don't want to curl no more. The other side is like I'm popping over here. You don't want to wash me because. It's going to mess up the pattern. <laughs> and that's exactly why I have the slick back and a headband on today, girl. It looks I hear delicious. You. Looks like my, hair is, my hair is slick back, too, with my bald you know, <laughs> look going on that I have. Yeah, You got yeah. that glow. Got it's that glow. Glowing. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Janae. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> Janae, let's jump in. Let's. I'm so excited to talk to you. Obviously, we've known each other for such a long time, but I want to go back to the beginning yes. of young little girl Janae you've lived in multiple areas but like let's talk about who you were as a young girl and what that journey was like um as you were figuring out who you were and figuring out what you wanted to do um as an adult for a career 
Um, I would say a lot of it has not changed at all. I was a big nerd. I love to read. So from a very young age, I wanted to be a writer. Like pretty much I was started writing poetry when I was like four or five years old. Um, I was kind of, you know, I was the only child for a long time. So I was like very isolated and I had a overprotective dad. So I couldn't play with everybody. You know, it's kind of like my family's one of those. Do we know their people families? Like not to make us sound bougie, but yeah, it was like, you definitely can't play with everyone. You can't go outside, go read a book, go to your room. Your mom's on the phone. Don't bother your mom. Go to your room. Um, music was a great outlet for me. I listened, I was like a huge Prince fan, you know, so the entertainment journalism stuff started early too. I was super into Prince. Michael Jackson um, was obsessed with like Apollonia. Uh, Like I was, I saw Purple Rain way before I was supposed to like, (laughs) got my butt whooped for it because I talked my, my mom's youngest brother into taking me. And he made me swear I wasn't going to tell. And I told and I got, I got a spanking for it. Um, What else? My, my stepdad who legally adopted me. So I always called him Poppy. He never, it wasn't ever like stepdad. It's always Poppy. So he was super into music and he's a musician. He played, well, he's a dentist, but he also played the piano and he had been in a band when he was in high school And so we, I would go to his office and he would be playing like Bill Collins and Cool in the Gang. So there was always that stuff. And then my mom was super into R&B. So it was always like Anita Baker, Regina Bell, Whitney Houston, Luther Vandross. Like she, like Luther Vandross is really her everything. Johnny Gill, her everything. Like, so I was hearing R&B. I was hearing pop music. I was super into it. Um... The rap stuff started really early too. Uh, probably even when I was in Atlanta, hearing other kids um, with like, you know, like I don't want to age. I'm gonna age myself, but it was like, you know, those early when the source used to make like the tapes that with the compilation <laughs> tapes. So I would get those in my stocking as stocking stuffers for Christmas. So I was super even into rap like really young, and then. When I was eight, we moved to Boston. So I was around mostly Jewish kids and that they started introducing me to like um, Motley Crue and Metallica. And so I, w- I got into rock music. And then when I was 12, we moved to Iowa, which was like really hard, very isolating. And I would just shut myself away and listen to hip hop. Like when, when Dr. Dre, The Chronic came out, like, I just was in the in the room, writing down the lyrics to memorize the lyrics. Um, so all those early projects, Nas, Wu-Tang Clan, all of that stuff, I was like super geeked out on that because honestly, there was like no black culture in Iowa. So I had to kind of like create it in my own little world, you know, and um, it was a t- it was a tough time, but like I kind of stuck to what I knew reading. I always read a lot of black literature. My parents, my mom, um, she has her PhD. She's a sociologist. um, um, And she had all these books. So I started reading like all of like the things that I ended up having as required reading uh, for my Africana studies minor, I actually had read by high school because my parents just had all that black literature in our home. Um, and I did really well in school. I was a nerd for sure there. Like my parents were just, they were really big on excelling. So if I brought home a B, it was like, what are you doing? You do you need to do extra homework or what do you, what's distracting you? That kind of thing. Um, but I, I definitely had, uh, realized I was pretty smart. So I kind of would like, once I was a little bit older, I would kind of hang out with a crowd that was doing a lot. And then I would, but I would still do really well. (laughs) I would still do really well in school. So I was like, all my friends are like failing (laughs) or going to the alternative high school. 
And I'm over here like straight A's, but I would get up in the morning and like do my homework, write my papers. I actually was up early to roller set my hair. So while my hair was roller set, I would be like doing my calculus homework. Uh, But yeah, I would say I always knew, I didn't know I had an entertainment career ahead of me, but like when I was in Iowa, there was not a lot for me to look forward to, except for like when Alvin Ailey would come to town because our city was where the University of Iowa was. So we'd get Alvin Ailey, we get the Harlem Boys Choir. Um, and then I had a Vibe Magazine subscription. So when that would come, that was like huge for me. Every day after school, I would come home and watch BET. So I like knew all of the songs. I was on the dance committee, so I would always be make trying to make sure that we, and when I say we, it was literally like 10 Black people in my whole school, but I want to make sure we had a few songs. It wasn't about to be all, you know, Stairway to Heaven and, you know, we, we needed some BBD, we needed some TLC, you know, and I would be kind of radical, try to throw Paris on the list, like, you know, like some like West Coast, you know, a little bit of gangster rap. And sometimes they wouldn't play that stuff, but they usually whatever the DJ had, they would play a little bit of rap music um, for us. But so when so you were in um, uh, Iowa, and it, so at what point did you get to College Park? Because that's like black, 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 right? And then so, <laughs> so I was like, really young in College Park, and that's when I was super into reading. And I remember okay. being in daycare. And the ladies were like, well, where is she going to go to school? Because I was I literally always had my nose in a book. And mm-hmm. I think they were like, how is she going to survive Tri-Cities High School? Because, <laughs> because for like elementary school, I went to, I don't know if you know the Meadows. I know you're from Atlanta. I don't know if you know the Meadows because mm-hmm. it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I lived off of Old National. Like if you know where Camelot, Camelot isn't any good anymore. But like in the 80s, it was like a pop in condos. Like Dominique mm-hmm. Wilkins' brother lived down the hall from us. Like we had a condo in a fairly nice, con- you know, like the complex and uh the meadows was walking distance from you know where i went to school and they had a talented and gifted program so initially they had talked about skipping me but they ended up just sending me to this talented program where like we would go learn about albert einstein like you know a couple times a week (laughs) play with brains like i don't know it wasn't a very structured program it was just kind of like the teachers had figured out that I was bored in second, first and second grade and I would start talking to the other kids. So they were like, we're either going to have to skip her or put her in this talented program. So they did that. But I, uh, I would say I moved by third grade. So I didn't fully get the black experience. You know, I was when we went back to Boston, which my mom got her PhD from BU. So I had, we had been there when, from like when I was one year old, till I was four and then Atlanta was in between four and eight. So going to, it was a culture shock for me <laughs> going to uh, Massachusetts from Georgia. I remember my mom used to overdress me like, cause she was just worried. It was so cold. And I, she would put like tights and I would have like wool sweater, wool, wool pants. And I'm allergic to wool, but we only found this <laughs> out because she's like overdressing me and I would get to school and I'm sweating and itching. And the teacher had to like send my mom a note, like it's not that cold (laughs) and she can't wear wool by the way. (laughs) Like I would come home and I'm all scratched up and it was tough at first, but um, you know, it was a really small school environment in Boston. So that worked great. It was like a great program. Um, Shout out to Lawrence School. Like I still, I know you guys follow me on social. So I still am friends with my elementary school friends, like probably close. I have a closer knit group with them than my high school friends. And then even to some extent, my college, I have a few college friends who like I'm still cool with. And also they're also in the business. So it's like, we've stayed in touch because we see each other all the time. Well, speaking of college, like, let's talk about how you made your way to New York city Oh yeah, and <laughs> NYU, which is the exact opposite of like where you were coming from. Talk a little bit about why NYU getting in your time in New York. 
Yeah. Well, getting in, I actually, so in in high school, my senior year, I dated a, a basketball player and he was getting recruited everywhere, but I actually had more interest from colleges than he did. I was a national achievement scholar, the only one in my state the year I graduated from high school. So I literally could have went anywhere. I applied. I knew I wanted to uh, go back to the Northeast and I wanted to be at a liberal arts school. So I applied to like Brown, Bryn Mawr, Amherst, Wesleyan. I did like the first part of the Harvard application, but I didn't like it when I went to go visit there. So it was like a weird thing where I still got the acceptance letter from the Harvard Black Students Association. It was like weird, but it all boiled down to a combination of my great I had like a fabulous visit to NYU. The tour guide like sold it. And it was almost like a foreshadowing because I ended up becoming a tour guide, like they call them admissions ambassadors for NYU. So like I had a great tour. And then I also like we went shopping and it was raining the day I visited NYU. But I still like something inside. I'm very intuitive. So I just like felt like, oh, this is it. This is the place. And then when the national achievement announcement came, I almost switched because I got more colleges offers after I got that and they were full ride offers. So I was like, I don't want student loans. Like Howard offered me a full ride. So I was like, I'm going to go to Howard. Like I've heard all these amazing things about Howard. All I knew was after six years in Iowa, I wasn't living in the Midwest like ever, never, ever, (laughs) ever again. I did not want to be uh, isolated like that. It was very traumatic. And I'm like laughing now, but it's seriously like I had to do a lot of work in my 30s to overcome my high school years. And NYU went a long way in healing because I went to New York and the diversity was just incredible. And having been like one of the only for so long, it was so great to be somewhere where like I wasn't an anomaly. People embrace my natural hair. I felt I felt like it was a place where I could try new things. So even with my hair, when I what I was talking about getting up at 6 a.m., I wore my hair straight the the whole time I was in Iowa. When I got to New York, I didn't have my mom to press my hair anymore. So I was like, okay, now is the time. We're gonna figure this wash and go thing out. And this is like it sounds like not a big deal because the natural hair movement is like to the point now where it seems like 50-50 as far as Black women and, you know, having natural hair. But like at that point in time, you know, it was just starting. So that was kind of what New York did for me. And then the great thing too was like a lot of people will complain NYU doesn't have a campus, but the city truly is your campus. And like the great thing about if you, especially if you dorm at NYU, that you get Broadway tickets, you get these concerts. I remember uh, we would go to Columbia when they had concerts. So like my freshman year, we went to go see Lauren Hill and A Tribe Called Quest at Columbia perform. And then Most Def and De La Soul came to NYU. So all of those opportunities, I think, all started kind of playing into like, I love going to these cultural experiences, being part of them. And New York, NYU really uh, contributed to me, like being part of that. Like when I got to NYU, I still wanted to be a writer, but I was like really concerned that writers are poor because everyone will tell you. Like when you tell people you want to be, oh, that's a nice hobby, but like what do you, you know, what do you want to do professionally? Often in New York, they are poor. It's so expensive to live here, right? Yeah. Well, now it really is. But I lived in Washington Heights. Once I moved out of NYU housing, I I lived in Harlem and Washington Heights. And when I lived in New York, I literally, we figured it out. I had a, actually one of my friends from high school moved to New York. She and I became roommates. We had a three bedroom in on 164th between Broadway and Fort Washington. And our rent was like 1400 So really cheap. And we had a really nice place. And the subway was within two blocks and, uh, well, four, I guess four blocks. And um, I I worked at NYU after college because I went straight to get my MFA. And I did, again, me and the student loans, I think it's because I'm a tourist. I'm very like, 
I like security. I like financial security. So I was like, when I graduate, I'm just going to get a job at NYU so that I could pay my tuition to get my master's degree because I'm going to be a writer and writers are poor and I'm not going to be able to pay this, you know, additional student loans. So that was kind of what my thought process was. So um, I networked my butt off to find this, this uh, job that I got. And it really was a great job in that I didn't have to take work home. I was a receptionist and I got overtime pay. So like, I think I ended up making like $55,000 straight out of undergrad, which was like unheard of, you know, only the banker, only the kids that became banking analysts were making that. But because of overtime, I was making great money and my classes were in the evening for grad school. So I um, got into the New York light, nightlife, which honestly, I probably had gotten into my freshman year when I first moved to New York. Um, and it was like, I was dangerously close to like, you know, socialite was going to be, <laughs> that was about to be my career path because it was just like, oh, this event is cute. I just got invited. Let's go, you know. But I sense, Janae, because it literally is like what life is like as a music journalist and being in entertainment. It's like you were getting, you were interning before you were even interning. Just yeah. Also, just thinking about you being able to socialize, get up and still get your schoolwork done. I was like, that is the life of a entertainment journalist. 100%. But I think it contributes to like, I know, I don't know if you guys are like this too, but like when you're not doing three things at once, don't you feel like you're being lazy? Like I literally cannot just focus on one task. I always have to be doing Oh like, boy. I'm always <laughs> Look at Dee Dee's like, face. <laughs> I'm re- am I reading you? <laughs> Girl, you, uh, sadly, you are speaking my language, and I'm like, because obviously, John and I both have full time jobs, and yeah. we also do this, and then there's like a zillion other things I want to do, and I'm learning that I have to have more of a narrow sort of focus sometimes, just tunnel vision, in other words, because yeah. when I'm like this, I'm very sort of scattered. Yeah. Um, so, it, oh gosh, the ebb and flow of that is something insane. So what usually ends up, uh, sac- being sacrificed is like my, my personal life. Like yeah. we're going on a date with my boyfriend and I don't know how long. And he was <laughs> he's like, I'm like boyfriend. What's that? <laughs> I'm sure my boyfriend says the same thing. Like, yeah. What? what's happening here we're, we're together <laughs> like, could you move one of these laptops out of the bed so i can get in it <laughs> one of the laptops day you might be worse than me don't don't ask don't ask um but janae so i want to i want to talk about so you still had this desire to be a journalist and and, and you wanted to write but you were like i don't want to be poor so uh-huh. what were you 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 get your bachelor's you're in school for your master's you're you're working as well at the school, are you writing in between any of this? Did you get a little writing gig? Yeah, so anywhere? the thing about when you're getting your MFA, you have to do a thesis. So I was working on a thesis. I was doing a short story collection and like, it was actually really musical. Like my thesis was a series of short stories that were all, they all revolved around outcast songs. So like each song and like, I had like a really lyrical. Send me that today. I want to see that. Read that. Oh my God. I love that. I actually got one of the stories published in the best black woman's erotica. (laughs) I forget which volume, I think volume four or something like that, which my mom was like, why are you writing smut? Like (laughs) today is like to this day. Cause she thinks like gossip. She's like gossip. She's like, why are you still writing smut? Like, I think it's a different kind of smut now, but it was actually one of my mentors, uh, Samia Bashir, (laughs) she's a poet. And when I was, when I was at NYU, um, I met some, one of the grad students, his name was, uh, man, I'm going to mess up his name. Ali Kiran Lansana, I think is the pronunciation, but he and Tony Medina and Samia Bashir were working on um, this 
anthology of black writing. So it was like short stories and poetry. And I, um, they asked me to be their editorial assistant. So myself and, um, Laini, um, Mad Booty, I don't know if you know her, but her father, um, is from Chicago. And I like, why is his name? Don Lee was his name. He changed it to, I forget, but Mad Booty is the, their last name, but, uh, Black nationalism, they were very, like, he's, his, her dad was super involved in that. So the two of us were editorial assistants for this trio of poets. And they all, like, taught me so much because they, like, being a poet, a Black poet particularly, obviously, you're not, everyone is not getting the Amanda Gorman treatment, you know? So it's like, they had so much experience. They knew so many writers. I met so many writers through them. And then Samia was the one who told me writers write. So she, cause she was like, I'm editing this anthology of, of erotica and I want you to submit. And I was like, I don't write erotica. Like I love Anais Nin, but I'm not really like erotica writer. And she was like, writers write, just, just write. So I had this, uh, I love the song Funky Ride by Outkast. So that was the inspiration for my piece of erotica. And it actually did really well. A lot of the, the critics that reviewed the book actually like quoted my story and they ended up using one of the quotes from my story on the, the back of the book. So that was like my first little taste of getting published. Um, and I started getting addicted to that. So I was like, okay, I just want to get like something published every year. So I got in the uh, the anthology that that Tony and um, Hugh and Samia were doing. I got in the anthology that Samia did, and then I was just networking um, with people in New York City, and I met um, an editor of a travel savvy magazine. I pitched her to write about my cousin's wedding, which was aboard one of the Royal Caribbean cruises. So I wrote got that published. And then I was like, I'm just going to keep working at this. Uh, I made friends with uh, someone named Brooke Stevenson who worked for uh, Rolling Out in New York. And he kind of took me under his wing and he would take me to different events and introduce me to people. And uh, there was also, do you know Rashawn Hall? You probably should know Rashawn. He's, I think he's at Music Choice now, but he was at MTV at one point. He was at Billboard. And then he became the managing editor of SOHH. And I had known him in college, but he really kind of knew that I was pursuing a professional writing career from bumping or bumping into me when I would be with Brooke at all of these events. So a few different things happened that really like pushed me into writing professionally. One was 9-11. So I was in New York when that happened. I had really bad PTSD from that. And I wanted to leave New York because of that. But my mom was also like, I, after I got my MFA, I stayed in New York three more years. And she kind of was like one nervous still because of 9-11. Like, you know, for a few years following it, we're all terrified. There's going to be another attack. And my family is mostly in the South. She was living in Florida at the time working at um, FAMU. So they're all trying to get me to leave New York. because of 9-11. And uh, I personally was just having a hard time focusing because I was I was in the streets all the time. I was at every party. I was getting drunk, you know, living it up in my 20s. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to move to go focus on writing. So I left New York in 2005 to focus full-time on my writing, to work on a novel. And I had been pitching my short story collection. I actually... Um, I don't know. Tony Blackman, she's a writer. Um, she had referred me to her agent. So I sent her a collection of, of my stories. Her agent gave me really good constructive criticism. She was like, at, right now, short story collections are not selling. If you can find a way to like make this into a novel, you, you know, so the hope was I was going to leave New York, change, work my thesis into a novel pitch it to the agent again. And then by that time I had actually met John McGregor. Uh, he's an agent and he was like really confident in me. And he put a lot of, you know, he was, he just really believed. And he was like, 
you can do this. Like I already, he already knew who, who he wanted my editor to be. He just was like, go leave, work on this book and we're going to sell this book. So I leave to go do this book and I'm gone. I left New York in August of 05 in September, no, October. So it, two months later, Rashawn Hall reaches out and he was like, I'm over at SOH, SOHH now. We need a writer. Are you interested? So I was like, yeah, of course. So literally through me, like I say yes. And within like that day, I'm like interviewing Ron Browse, the hip hop producer for SOHH. So from there, they were giving me, I was writing two stories a day for them. And then they were like, hey, can you do this column player watch? So I started doing player watch. And then next thing I know, the editor from Double XL, Anselm, it was Anselm Rock at the time. Well, he was Anselm Samuel then, but he uh, he's at Complex now. That's why I'm I'm sure you guys know him. So he reached out and he was like, I've seen this story that you did on Justice League for uh, SOH, SOHH. We want you to do something similar for us. And I was like, oh, this is how it works. So you start writing one place and then people see your byline and then more people become your editor. So I start writing for Anselm. I'm still writing for SOHH. Then Ryan Ford, I had, I ended up moving to LA because when I left, so this is, I left New York, moved to Florida with my mom, but I met a guy who lived in Atlanta. So I was going between Florida and Atlanta and then he lost his job and he got a new job that was in LA. And he was like, I want you to come with me. So I ended up moving to LA after one year and I'm out with like, starting to meet people in LA and I meet Ryan Ford. He's over at Cashmere now. Um, but at the time he was like the West coast editor for, for the source. So I start right. And at this point I'm now writing every month for double XL, the source still writing daily for SOHH. Um, and I was making pennies. <laughs> I was literally, I was not making anything, but I, you know, I'm in this relationship and he was making six figures. So I'm living like a housewife. Like he's going to work every day. I'm writing and he's, he's like sending me grocery lists. So in between me interviewing, like I'd be interviewing, I don't know, like Polo the Don or something. And then have to go walk to, I didn't have a, I didn't drive in LA. So I'd have to walk to Ralph's, go get my little grocery list, like bring it back home and then cook dinner, you know, I, but like I worked on the East coast schedule. So I get up at seven, I'd be done writing by like three, go to the grocery store, go come home. And I had like, you know, the, the wife experience, I guess. <coughs> um, I got domesticated and, um, <laughs> it would have, um, probably continued that way for quite a while, but the recession happened and, I didn't even have enough. So the freelance money that I was getting, I mean, if I tell you how how the freelance money was the was probably the better money, the SOHH money was I think at the height of it, I was probably making like 1100 a month from them. But so I was supplementing it with these other places, but I wasn't paying rent. You know, shout out to the ex for that for holding me down. Um and then it wasn't working out. So I moved back to Atlanta, but the Atlanta thing was one of those things where another intuitive thing, like I kept feeling like God was telling me to move back to Atlanta. Cause it was like, there was a lot of writers in LA. Um, and there was a lot of writers in New York and the editors from both LA and New York, because they knew I had the Atlanta connection were always like, Hey, can you cover this thing in Atlanta? It was like, telling me almost like, if you move to Atlanta, you're going to really do well freelance wise. So I ended up stepping out on faith, moving to Atlanta, moving back to Atlanta in 2008 and I have family there. So I stayed with family at first and everything was cool. Like I'm paying my bills. I'm not, I'm still not like paying my rent. I'm staying with family and the recession hits. And so now I have no income. Like I still had the freelance gigs, but they were like every month they were letting us know there's going to be another reduction. It was like, you know, when the housing market collapsed 
And they were like, well, we've been paying you a dollar a word. Now we're going to pay you 50 cents a word, right? And then the next month they'd be like, sorry, guys, now we're going to pay you a quarter a word. Wow. So I'm literally like writing for Peanuts and like working whatever little production assistant or like script assistant job I could get through like my network. Like I was still out there talking to people and people were like, well, you have some production experience. Like just come to this reality show set. So I was doing that. And then a friend of mine was like, Bossip is looking for a managing editor. So I applied, but I was really like, not sure because being like a serious music journalist, entertainment journalist, I'm like, gossip. I don't think I want to do that. But um, Angela Yee and I have been friends for almost 20 years now. And she was the one that was like, you can do this. She was working in radio. She had just started working in radio, but she was like, I get tips all the time that I can't use because, you know, radio and people, you know, people actually know who's writing, who's speaking, if it's radio versus like, if I'm writing it. So she helped me out a lot, but I had a lot of, I had a huge network of publicists by now, you know, like, you know exactly how it works. Like you get in there, you start out, you know, no one, you know, nothing, you get thrown in the fire and you figure it out. So I literally had publicists who were like, Hey, my client, blah, 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 blah. You know, and then I started actually meeting talent. And then I would be like getting like the girl, my boyfriend, da, 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 da. and I would be like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, so as much as I was anti, it worked out really well. And I was really successful at it really quickly and started, kept getting promoted and promoted. But I got stressed out. I got burned out within the first year of writing for Bossip. So I left after the first year. And my plan had always been to only do it for one year. I had planned to do it for one year and then like learn from um, Mar Frazier at the time. She was the chief creative officer for Mogulum Entertainment that which owned Bossip at the time. Um, Interactive One owns them now. But Marv and I clicked like this and, you know, she trusted me. She didn't want to be in the trenches in the sense of like, the face of the brand or the person who was doing the interviews. So I did all those things that she didn't want to do the TV appearances. And that's kind of how I became the face of Bossip. And uh, I was nervous because I've always kind of been the person that gets along with most people. Like, and it's a tough thing because when I, before I came, the brand was really like, um, very like sharp. It's still sharp. You know what I mean? But like, I think I saw the potential for there to be something closer to like a people magazine, you know, just where it could be like a better, I still wanted the humor to be there, but I just wanted there to be a lot more like love and also, uh, people I like intention. I move with a lot of intention. So like, I would go into these interviews and like, I would know, like the publicist would kind of prep me, like, you know, the talent, that the talent was nervous or the talent, like the, the website had written something negatively about the person before, but I think I'm really, I could be really disarming in terms of like, when you're face to face with me, like, you're not going to feel anything but like good energy. So that was an effort, you know, like I went to every interview, like, I remember one of my early ones when I was with Bossa was Fonsworth Bentley. And he was like, oh my God, your energy. Like, he was like, I don't trust, you know, journalists, but like, I like something about you. Like, I just love. And um, same thing, Tamika uh, Foster was Tamika Raymond at that time. Like, she was in that marriage with, with Usher. And there was, you know, she was catching a lot of heat. And I was somebody who... We still would report things uh, about them. And she would call me and she would be like, Janae, like, and she would talk to me for like an hour and I just would just hear her out. You know, I might not even change anything about what we wrote, but I would just hear her out. And so I think that kind of went a long way with helping us kind of make the brand more like talent friendly and make it more um, just 
just grow, just grow it. So it wasn't in this place of like, just being sharp or just being daggers, you know, that it could also just be like a fun place to, to get your news and a fun interview. And John and I can, <coughs> excuse me, co-sign on that because that's one of the things we love so much about you is how kind and warm and generous you are and just always a smile, a big hug with lots of hair on your cheek. Um, and, and I want to just, um, I just want to first shout out Angela Yee, who is also killing it right now in the game. And I love that you talk about how long you, you all have been friends and this network of amazing relationships and that you have that help propel you to the next place. So you weren't getting formal mentorship. It feels like what you were really doing is just doubling down on your, your amazing network of creative people, business people, and calling it all together. And I'm curious to know, cause that is very strategic. How did you learn sort of that strategy? Because networking really wasn't a yeah. thing the way it is now. Yeah. It's not, so, it wasn't as busy then as it was as it is now. Okay, NYU is going to love this interview because <laughs> because I have to credit NYU. So, the job that I had that helped me pay for grad school was actually at the Stern School of Business and I worked in the Office of Career Development. So, I learned so I was like learning from the career counselors and like one thing and you hear it everywhere now like I I've, I've heard Issa Rae say this I've heard um Cody Oliver say this but everyone will tell you like that networking peer level is so much more important than networking like you know whatever that is vertically so I think that's where I learned it from um and I, you know, I was with all these, I was around all these business students. So like, even though I was in school for something creative, I'm like around really like brilliant, you know, uh, people who work in like consulting and finance and like helping them because they would come into our office and like, I was the face of the office then. So it was like, you would, I would sometimes be, while the people are waiting for their, their counseling sessions or whatever, I would be the person like they would kind of like vent to or, you know, vice versa. So, you know, I think that's kind of where it came from was, you know, I learned that about exactly that networking it like super early in my twenties. And it wasn't even something that I necessarily like was that conscious about. It just was it was kind of naturally happening because I was in a position where I was going to meet people a lot. And then because we were like in the same age group, even though we might not be doing the same type of study, you know, you still, I was, I guess, learning to, to create relationships regardless of our differences. Like you, you learn to kind of like focus on what are these common interests that we have? Like, what are the commonalities? And then forging friendships. And honestly, I've always, um, I'm kind people never believe me when I'm like, oh, I'm an introvert. Um, like, I think naturally I kind of am. And it was, it was, but I always have been the person that had a lot of relationships, like even like elementary school, like when your mom is like, okay, you're going to have a birthday party. You can only invite seven people. Like that was always my worst nightmare was like only being able to invite seven people to something because like, I just always would have one or only one or two like really close people, but there was always like a big group of people where, but this person did this for me and this person did that. And like, I'm very, I, I'm very connected. Um, it goes back to my intuitive side. So like, um, and I, it's funny cause I know you guys probably saw the flyer. I know we're going to talk more about what I'm doing coming up, but like, I, someone caught video footage of me saying the, the quote that people will forget what you say and people will forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you make them feel. But like literally ever since I've heard that, like that's something that means a lot to me is like, you never want to make people feel negative. Like you always want to be connoted with like this positive feeling and it works. And I, it's made an impression on me, not just me making other people feel good, but like Every part, like I'll never forget Romeo Miller <laughs> uh, giving me a hug. I had a tough day. I had to come to Bossip 
after getting some tough news and we had the cast of growing up hip hop and it was like the first season they were over at the office and the publicist was introducing everyone and and Romeo's like just looked at me and he was like you need a hug and he like gave me like this big hug and like it made such an impression it's and obviously I said first season of growing up hip hop so you know that was like years ago but like stuff like that like I don't forget it. You know, I don't expect anybody else to forget it either. So, you know, I'm just big on that. Well, I love that you mentioned all the like amazing things that you have going on. I I tell you what, your Instagram is literally <laughs> like booked and blessed. You are speaking, you have curl mob, you are producing panels. And I could just see the trajectory from everything that you're saying with your business acumen, the production assistant work that you did, also the creative aspect of of writing and this amazing imagination and your passion for women in music, Black women yeah. in music in particular. And of course, natural hair. Talk yeah. to us about some of the things that you're working on. Honestly, Janae, you could be doing a master class on like life. <laughs> Correct. Figuring out, like, and now yeah. you're not, obviously you're not a struggling writer. So there's, what what would the master ca- class be called? Like, oh, Janae Bogan's lessons in leveling up. Um, we could think of some other alliterations, but talk to us a little bit about everything you have going on. Um, I think it's funny because I, it's, people see all this, but I'm, I've been in the middle of a pivot for the last few years and, um, just, I think anytime you do something for a really long time, like you, you kind of will start to feel stagnant. So I think it does get tough when you reach a certain level where you're making the money that you like always dreamed of making, but you know, you can make more and you also know, like you can give more, you can do more. So I think that's kind of where I am right now. So, um, I am super passionate about gender equity and women, especially women in entertainment, because I do remember, coming into it and being like kind of jealous, especially on the music side, because I would, I always have had a lot of male friends and they would get these relationships with the artists and they would be able to like maintain them. They would, they would get invites to like come backstage and to come to shows. And I get the invites now, but like early in my career, I felt, and some of it was like in having a boyfriend and my boyfriend would always be like, I would get the invite sometimes And he would be like, that man doesn't want to be friends with you. That man is trying to have sex with you. Like, no, you're not going to Chris Brown's video shoot. Absolutely not. Like, and uh, so that was kind of where that came from was like, I really was, I wanted it. I wanted our space to be like a place where women would know how to maneuver. And I also wanted it to be a place where like, we weren't treated differently, like where we could figure out how to like, make those relationships and do those type of things. So I have to shout out the A3C festival because they gave me the first opportunity to put something together. And I did my first women in charge panel in 2014. And since then I've, it's been like years of doing those. And then I actually brought that to South by Southwest twice with some really great panels and literally picked from my personal, like, friends who all work in the business, you know, whether it was Angela Yee or Karen Civil or um, Nicole Wiscorco, Dina Mardo. Uh, I got to do a fireside with Ethiopia, Ethiopia, which was like one of the most incredible having Ethiopia tell me that like, she's loved my writing from, you know, when I was writing for double XL, that was like mind blowing for me having, um, I write for variety now freelance and having Shirley Halpern, tell me like I'm one of her favorite writers. Like that's been really like mind blowing for me, but it, it's also inspired me to like, just stay in there. And, you know, because of being a content director, you don't write as much as you used to. So I still have to figure out like places to write and like direction, things that I want to do directionally. Now I, I do think there's so many more people in that space of like producing women panels, producing women festivals, Literally today, I'm going to speak at the Grind Pretty Fest, which is, you know, all about helping women become bosses. Um, In May, I will host uh, one of the stages at the Strength of a Woman Festival. And 
when I saw that Ashana Ayers had put that together with Mary J. Blige, I reached out immediately and was like, how can I be involved? This is something I'm passionate about. I've been doing this for years. I would love to show up for you guys. And uh, what Heather uh, is doing at Live Nation with Femme It Forward is incredible work. And I think it's we're all just like-minded thinking the same way. Like, how can we make women fully step into their power, learn what to ask for, learn how to ask for what they're, what they deserve financially. I think that's all something, you know, those are things that I'm, I'm super passionate about. Curly hair. Uh, yes, I am taking curl mob from being a merch brand. So that started out with me just wanting, knowing that I kind of had more of a platform, especially once Basta became a TV show. I was like, well, if I'm going to have my face on TV, I need to have a product or a business that I'm also selling. So I was like, Curl Mob was a hashtag I used all the time. And it really was just merch initially, like hoodies and t-shirts and my chain, which um, is available for <laughs> on the website if anyone wants one. Um, yeah. So that's where it started, but I'm pivoting that into content creation. I want to do more content creation with that platform and I, everything isn't ready yet. So I can't fully like make announcements, but like, that's something that is still growing. It's something I'm passionate about, but it's something I have to make time for, which is extremely difficult. Cause I am like super booked, super busy. Um, what, did I answer everything or is there another part of the question? I'm Well, you did. And I want to talk one of the themes across these conversations that we're having for season three is about the pivot, right? Is about yeah. yourself and in, in sort of imagining yourself differently than you have been. And that's also something that is true, I think, for John and I, hence us wanting to start this platform and really an opportunity to shine a light on all the amazing people that we work with across the entertainment industry and also imagining ourselves like just differently having yeah. a, of a creative voice as well. And I certainly have been doing what I'm doing for a long time and I'm looking at what you're doing and I'm like, yes, I love this. <laughs> it's such great inspiration. Yeah. Like, it's not. Yeah. No, go ahead. I was going to say, it's not always totally intentional. So like when I did the boss of TV show, I had someone from CBS reach out to me about doing CBS, the talk. And I really loved I was a I was a top talker on the talk for six different episodes. And so from that, a lot of people were like, you belong on TV, you got a face for TV. And I just love the energy uh, for that particular show. Um, the doing the boss of TV show was a little bit different. And it showed me uh, a that like, I do really love production. And, you know, I did plays when I was like living in Boston. I was I was like, literally like the little musical theater kid moving to Iowa made me shy because I didn't want to stick out as, as a black kid. But like, I missed the part of production where it's like, it's not just the people on the stage. It's like the people holding the cameras, the people making the set, the wardrobe, like all of those pieces of like creating the family to create the thing that like where people only see half, you know what I mean? So I think that part of uh doing that show it just really made me want to produce um I still you know I still am interested in being on camera but like I'm super interested in some of the other parts that go into production writing um producing developing so I have a whole like I've always like I said I've always been that person that has too much going on so I have like a whole list of things that I want to do but it's just a matter of like carving out the time. And I'm hoping that even by me speaking this, like the pieces will come together because I know sometimes, like I said, it's not always intentional. A lot of it is like very, um, you know, I feel like as far as being intentional, that's more of God's thing. You know, like you put out kind of like, these are kind of some things I'm working on and then the right people and opportunities come and it all works in a way that like makes sense. So for me, my life has been like that. Like, like I might just kind of have a feeling like I, how I did to go to NYU, you know, or I might just have a feeling like I did to come back to Atlanta and those feelings result in success. 
but people have to really trust their feelings. And as I'm saying that, I'm talking to myself too, because there is so much fear that is is involved. Like when you know you want to do something big, like you're taking a big risk that you're going to fail big, but like you're also taking a big risk that you're going to win big. So it's worth the risk, but it's so much easier to say than to actually do. And I'm definitely talking to myself because like I said, you know, financially, you know, having the security of a full-time job and having a company out there that has a huge name and has a huge following makes it really hard sometimes to leave. And I know so many of us are in these positions, whether you're, you know, a public, you're on the publicist side or you're, you know, even like the talent side, you know, you can just continue to play it safe and do what your agent tells you to do, or you can start your own production company and you can create, you know, your own shows or a la Abbott elementary or whatever you have, you know, whatever you say, but like, it's not the easiest thing. Like all of us are in these positions where we want to do things and we might have a little bit of money to do them, but like some of these things take a lot of money. So whether, you know, it's, we're not all like in the heads, Kickstarter headspace either. We're not all, you know, but it is great because I think we're in like a really great time for black people where it's all coming together. You have the people who are uh, teaching us about, financial literacy and understanding the grants that are out here. I love that fearless funds is like funding these black businesses. You have people who are teaching us about stocks and um, we're learning more about saving and how like making investments and not using your own capital to start your business. Or you can't, you know, like you can hear the different sides of it. Um, Another good friend is Tristan Walker from Bevel. um, And I, you know, he, he came to me before Bevel was born to show me his idea. And I was like, yeah, like I was a hundred percent all in. And now he literally stays on me. Like, did you, did you do this yet? Did you start this yet? You know? And, and so I get advice, not just from people on the, on the entertainment side, but the business side. And I think it all goes back to what, you know, what I was saying just about like keeping your, keeping the people who uh, care about you close and like keeping the people who like believe in you close. And it's not always like the people who you think it's going to be. You hear that all the time. Like your best friend isn't, isn't always going to be the one saying go. Your best friend might be the one saying like, um, don't you got a mortgage to pay? You know what I mean? And that might be your parents too. So sometimes like you got to like find your cheerleaders elsewhere, you know, and find the people who have done it, who are willing and not everyone's willing to give out their, their sauce either, like their recipe or whatever, like, and, but it, that doesn't matter. We all should have our own recipes. Like it helps to have the guidelines, but I think Jay-Z was quoted. I I saw Jay-Z quote somewhere where he was talking about just because you didn't do it or your, well, your business failed doesn't mean it's going to fail for me, you know? And I think like, that's the key is just, we all have our own unique road to walk. So it's like, you can't always, you know, look at what someone else did and follow what they did exactly. Like, it's really important to like, listen to your gut. And also I would say pray on it because sometimes like, literally some of the biggest things that have happened for me, like I was, I was down and I prayed and within like a day, like an opportunity presented itself, you know, but I think, and I think the other thing is just like, closed mouths don't get fed. So if you want to do something for me, the writing thing, especially I, I really believe my career got started because, you know, I, I was telling people I want to write. And a lot of them, when I lived in New York in my early twenties, I'm going to parties as my friend, Nicole Plantons plus one, she worked for the Neptunes, uh, at the time. And, we're going to a lot of vibe parties because she was really good friends with Damian Lemon who worked at vibe. And, um, some of the other people that worked at vibe, they were like, you're such a good literary writer. Like you don't want to, you know, you don't want to be a entertainment journalist. This stuff is boring. You get to do the creative fun stuff with your imagination. And then it like, it was the irony of like, that's exactly what I ended up doing, even though somebody didn't see that for me. Um, and for me, it just went back to the advice I had always gotten from Samia about writers writing. So like, I think at my core, I'm always going to be a writer and, you know, whatever situation I get into it, I always tell myself, like, you can always write yourself out of any situation. Like I can always, I'm never going to be 
like if I lost my job tomorrow, I could write something that could change my life. So that's kind of how I look at it is like, just always remember who you are at your core and what you're passionate about and like what your gift. And it's a God given gift. Like it's not something where I'm like, I mean, yes, I have a master's degree from NYU. Yes. I read like all the James Baldwin or whatever, but like at the end of the day, you know, this is, I, I have to recognize sometimes that like there's someone else who has a, I have a purpose and it wasn't necessarily determined by me. It's up to me to embrace it and to like fully show up as everything I can be. I'm sorry. My dog is shaking so loud. Fletcher, can you stop? Um, yeah. So it's, it's just important that I show up, you know, where I can. And that's what I, that's really what I try to do. It's like, just show up. And you and you have you have been showing up and showing out. I've and I've loved hearing your journey because again, I think that knowing you for so long, there's been like now this new awakening. My eyes are open in a different way of how I see you, and I think that's just such a that's just such a beautiful thing. You've already had this light about you already that Thank I just you. was already just I always just gravitated towards, and I was always just felt trusted in um uh outside of this work just like this life and i i see that now in your story that you li- you literally have you're just an amazing individual and i really want you, you to know that black on the scene dd and i we really support you we really see you we really you know we, we're rooting for you in everything that you do you are one of those trusted journalists who just gets it gets it honestly gets it to the right way and we just really want to continue to support you in, in everything that you're doing so I'm, I'm excited to hear about all the <laughs> all the opportunities and your your panels and moderating moderating you're going to be doing and everything to that. And I um, appreciate you guys because you you guys have both looked out for me like multiple times. Like I literally have been like, there's people who I wanted to meet that like John like it's it like literally that quote where it's like you know the people who speak you know who speak your name in rooms mm-hmm. that you're not in like that yeah. that's. That's you. Like, I appreciate <laughs> And that's real. And that is, and that's so real because again, it's, 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 it's like, you're, you're just so good. Right. And it's like, I know you're not, it's not going to go, you're not going to ask the crazy questions and you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's going to be, it's just, it's a trusting warmness about you again. That is just that it, it literally illuminates you. So um, shout out to just who you are. And shout out to your your education. Shout out to your your dreams and your ambitions. Like your again, parents, your parents, oh right? Yeah, it's just your socialite life. You're like back in the day in New York. Like I, I just love hearing just your journey, your journey, because it's just such a, it's such a beautiful thing. It's like this is the Janae TED talk, like of just like life <laughs> lessons that I, I'm like. I'm like writing stuff down, like, right. David and I are writing stuff down. Um, but, but as we close uh, on this episode, um, Didi and I, we, we really created this platform back on the scene to just shine a light on, on people like you, Janae, uh, that are in the industry, that are working, that are grinding, that are following their dreams and showing that, you know, you can do whatever you want to do. You can be a content creator. You can be on the talk and you can write and you can do all these things that you've done um, and that is our love letter to this Black entertainment space, our podcast, us, us shining a light on all these great, amazing people that we've come across. And we want to ask you, Janae, what is your love letter to the Black entertainment space? Um, my love letter to the Black entertainment space, I would definitely say that it's my work. Like, I definitely try to, um, you know, to tell these stories and, like, make it not about me, but, like, about about, and I, for a long time, I thought it was to my detriment. You know what I'm saying? Like I didn't, I enjoyed being a person who was behind the scenes and not the focus, you know, and it's really more about telling the story of the talent and, or the story within the story, you know? And, um, I've really enjoyed like the conversations, not just with the actors that everyone knows, but like sometimes the directors that people don't or working on, doing interviews with um, documentary producers or directors, just the, I like the inner nerd in me. Like I, I think I'm just super fed by um, the art of it all. You know, like one of my favorite interviews will always be with, uh, the one I did with Barry Jenkins. And um, 
We, um, I mean, like we talked, we could have talked for hours, you know, and that like in hindsight now I'm like, I should have shot my shot because that was the conversation <laughs> that was like the smart, the intelligence level that was there, you know, was just like mind blowing. He's such an incredible director. So like, you know, Barry Jenkins, incredible interview, Shaka King, like these, the talent level, like that's going on right now, like it gets me really excited and it makes it hard sometimes to like, think about leaving the the journalist side of it because it's like, I, at this point, like I get to talk to every amazing talent, amazing director that's coming out with these projects. But, um, you know, I, I, I also am inspired to create. So I think, that's really just at the end of the day is always going to be my love letter. It's, it's just whatever work that I'm creating, you know, and however I choose, however I choose or am given the opportunity to illuminate black excellence. Um, that's, that's exactly it. You know, I love us. And we love you. Yes. Janae, you always have a cheerleader in us. We Thank Thank you so much for your time, your light, your warmth, your passion. We see you. We support you. We love you. And thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much to our guests and to you for listening to this week's episode of Black on the Scene. We'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review, plus share your own love letter for Black entertainment and follow us on all social media platforms at Black on the Scene. See you next time.